All right, friends. I hate to do this to you. We should get some work done. Put our nose to the grindstone because we've got to finish First Samuel before before Memorial Day. I think that's the plan, right? Okay. We're going to be ambitious today. We're going to try and get two chapters done, but they, these are really good chapters. So we'll see what happens. Let's uh, let's start with a word of prayer. We praise you, O Lord, with all our souls. We will praise you as long as we live. You are a blessing to us, you who were the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Continue to keep your faith forever. Execute justice for the oppressed. Give food to the hungry. Set the prisoners free. Open the eyes of the blind. Lift up those who are bowed down. Watch over us, your people. In your most holy name we pray. Amen. Okay. What kind of questions do you have? Any questions? We are on chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. If you were going to describe where the situation is right now, what would you say? How are things going for everybody, the characters in the story? Not good. No. Okay. Now let's drill in a little bit deeper. Not good for whom and how. He's being pursued all over the world. That's right. Yep. Good. How about for Saul? How are things going for Saul? He's tormented. He's tormented. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have an interesting, in chapter 24, we have an interesting view of Saul. Um, So there's two questions I want you to think about as we go through these chapters today. So one is that David has um, a promise that was given to him by God chapters ago, right? What chapter was it that Samuel came and anointed him? Chapter 16, maybe? 15, 16? 16. Um, and he's got this promise that he's going to be the king, and it's going to be, it's 10, it's 10 plus years before he actually becomes king. And there's two questions that you should think about when we, when, as this goes along. So the one is, he is tempted left and right and has the capacity to take the kingdom by force, right? To seize it before it's his time. Um, and he resists that temptation. That is something that's paradigmatic for us. It's, it's maybe not the case that in our lives we so often have enemies that we are tempted to wipe out, right, before God does it for us. But there are things that in life you are tempted to grasp before it's time, before it's, before it's the proper time. Um, it takes us back to the Garden of Eden, of course, when Adam and Eve were um, given this command not to touch the fruit, not to eat the fruit of the tree, um, we don't, we don't have any indication in Genesis that God was at some point going to give it to them, but it seems likely, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, God wasn't withholding good things from them. Um, but they, they grasped what was not given to them to take at that time, right? Maybe it would have been theirs at some point, but it wasn't theirs right now, okay? And they reached out and took it. That story happens, that kind of a story happens um, often in Scripture. I want you to think about those kinds of stories, but then think in your life, like where does this happen in your life where you perceive the temptation to um, take matters into your own hands, right? God has given you a promise. Um, What kind of promises has he given you that you are then tempted to uh, commandeer for yourself? you're, You're tempted to fulfill the promises for yourself. Think about that. The other thing to think about is 
Um, why does it go on for so long? Why does God let it happen that David is pursued by Saul for so long, right? Why 10 years before he fulfills the promise? Why does David suffer so much at the hands of Saul? Why does Saul have to reach such, you know, depths of degradation before the story comes to an end? Think about that. See if you can puzzle about why that might be the case, okay? Those two questions to think about. Do you have any questions before we get started? Let's just get reading here and then we'll, we'll do some reflecting, okay? First Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, Davis, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Do you remember how many men David has at this point? In the hundreds. 600, we find out later he has 600, yeah. But he started out with, what was it, 300 or 200, and now he's got 600. Saul brings 3,000 men to come after David, okay? And he's seeking him in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Pause for a second. Does that seem like something God would say? I will give your enemy into your hand, and you will do to him whatever you want. So that's, that does not sound like the voice of God, okay? Um, so now, it's interesting to, con- uh, we don't really know whether they're just making this up, or whether like the serpent in the garden, they're taking God's words and they're twisting them, right? Because you could imagine God saying, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, Right? I will do that for you. But not, it's hard to imagine him saying, you get to, do, you get to treat him as you please. Um, so David's got this group of uh, 600 men who, remember, what, what's the characteristic? What are, what, how, how are these men characterized that, are, that have come to follow him? What's their life like? Why? Why is it not good? Yeah, I love the way that it's put. Um, they're bitter Chapter 22, verse 2, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, All the rebels, that's right. Um, So these people don't like Saul. Yeah, I mean, this is why they've come to follow David is because they do not like Saul. And so um, they they now come to embody this temptation, this little devil sitting on David's shoulder. Um, What's remarkable is that David resists the temptation, at least to some degree. Um, But it's really dangerous for him to have these people speaking such words into his ear, right? Um, It's where David shows himself to be a better Adam than Adam was, right? He does manage to resist the temptation. Um, But being in the company of people who who would lie to him like that or who would mislead him um, is really dangerous, okay? Uh, Keep going here. David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, it's not likely that Saul was wearing the robe when David cut it off. Um, right? he's, he's taken off his robe so he can do what he's got to do. And um, so David cuts off the corner of his robe. Now, but picture the, picture the scene for a second, right? So David is being pursued by Saul, and um, he and his men are hiding in a cave. They're not, they're not just like, they're not camping out in a cave. They're hiding, right? Because Saul is pursuing them. So picture the scene, Saul comes into the, like, so by stroke of strange fortune, Saul comes into the very cave where all these men are hiding. And you can picture them 
whispering silently to each other in the darkness, right? Trying to be really quiet. And it's a miraculous thing that Saul does not notice them, which points out his extreme vulnerability here, right? So the fact that we're told he went into the cave to relieve himself, this is um, just showing us how completely exposed he was, right? Not only did he not know that these men were there who could hurt him, but he was like literally exposed and has no clue, has no clue what's going on, okay? Afterward, after he's cut off, this is verse 5, after he's, David's cut off the corner of Saul's robe, his heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. That fact that David's heart strikes him, that is probably the most important thing about David, right? This is the difference between him and Saul. Saul's heart does not strike him, but David's heart does. It convicts him. And he, he hasn't even done anything like, the, the, I mean, he's, he's uh, done something presumptuous, but he hasn't harmed Saul. He hasn't done, even done remotely what his men suggested he should do to Saul. But it is this very symbolic thing. Do you remember the other time that a cor- the corner of a garment became, was important in this story? Do you remember? Yes. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the corner of his robe, which has this tassel on it, which is representative of the, of the tribes of Israel, right? And, and Samuel utters this prophetic word, just as, the king, as you've torn off the corner of my garment, so also will the kingdom be ripped out of your hand. And here it is happening again, except it is, um, it's prophetic in a different way because David, David we see, soon he, see him standing there with the corner of the robe in his hand and Saul is going to utter a prophetic word. Um, any questions at this point? You tracking so far? Um, the temptation is grave. David is, I mean, this is, this is a, a critical moment for David. And that, that he, uh, his heart strikes him, tells us so much about him. Okay? Verse 8, keep going. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord the king. Remember, there are 3,000 men out there. Okay? And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So not only does David decline to kill Saul, but then he exposes himself, right? And, and what's the point? Why is he doing that? Why does he come out 
and expose himself to Saul. Okay, so good. So he, he's, he's stricken in his conscience. He needs to um, explain what he's done. And he's hope, he wants to show Saul that he's not actually after him. What did you say, Donna? You said... He's not his enemy, and that maybe Saul will see this in the Yeah. Now... I don't know. I mean, you don't know it's David, but I, I'm so... Maybe, he'll, maybe Saul will see what he's done and repent. Because he really cared about Saul. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So by David making this appeal to Saul... He's not saying simply, look, I'm so much better than you are, right? Because, I mean, he does, he does in fact say that. He says, you've tried to do me harm, but I have, done you, I have not tried to do you any harm, right? Um, and Saul will echo those kinds of words. But that's not the point. The point is not, um, I, look, I'm, I'm better than you. I'm more worthy to be king. The whole point is to try and restore this relationship that has been utterly destroyed, right, by, by Saul's wickedness. Um, the, only, the only tool that David has in his toolbox for that is to show Saul his wickedness and to show Saul David his own righteousness, okay? So when David's showing Saul that he um, hasn't been conspiring against him, he is, he is demonstrating himself to be blameless. And that's really important for, his, for the sake of his conscience and for the sake of his kingship. We're going to see this later in the next chapter, how important this is. Um, he can't rule as a king if, he's got, if he comes to his kingdom by... Um, you know, by, by uh, unjust means, by, by seizing it. He can't rule with a good conscience. A ruler with a bad conscience will do anything, okay? You've already, in order, you've done the first, you've made the first bad move, you might as well make all kinds more. And so David is protecting his conscience here. Um, and, and therefore, he's protecting the kingdom, okay? Yes, Aaron. It seems like he's also giving Saul a chance to be... Um because it's like, okay, Saul could be pursuing David because he th- it's like self-defense. He thinks David's betrayed him, thinks David's against him. Yeah. And he's going to kill him because he's got to kill David before David. A Machiavellian kind of a thing. Like, not as bad as being a guy who's just like, I'm really jealous of David. I hate him and I want him to die. Right. Which is who he actually is. But it's like, David's giving him the chance to be like, look, this was all a misunderstanding. Yeah. I'm not trying to kill you. So now you don't have to come after me, but Saul. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see how Saul reacts to this. Um, But that's exactly right. It would almost be better if Saul was just like a pure political conspirator, but he is jealous, right? It's it's actually a grosser form of debasement to be only seeking his own personal gain, right? In his own justification, Marilyn. That he doesn't want to lose the royal line in his family, too. That is something he's concerned about, yeah. Yeah. He said that before. Yeah. I think that's a big issue. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and there's a there's a lot at stake um, in the kingdom. It's not just about sitting on the throne and being powerful, but it is. Yeah, for the sake of his his future. Although it, he has shown he has shown that he doesn't care that much about his his offspring, right, and their line, um, in the way he treats Jonathan. Yeah. Okay. Let's listen to how Saul responds. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me. 
in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Okay, what are your reactions to Saul? To Saul's response, Holly. Um, in verse 19, he still refers to David as son. Yeah, right. David all this time was trying to Not your enemy. Yeah, that's right. Right. So he's surprised. He's surprised that David would be gracious towards his enemy, but he's not convinced that that they're actually ought to be friends. Yeah, good. Just in case, extract the promise that you're not kill everybody that's in my family. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He he can, compels David to swear this oath, which David keeps. David keeps this oath. Um, Unfortunately, his men don't. Yeah. Right. Right. And that that's a uh, yeah. It becomes a bitter thing. That's true. What else? What other reactions do you have? I can't understand how he could say the Lord has put me into your hands and then continue to pursue me as, as we read on. Yeah. You know, how could he say that? And you know. What's the answer to that? How can he say that? Well, it's easy. Have a bad memory. He has a bad memory. Good. What? Who's, what? And he's also moved by the moment, and it can also just be. Right. All of which we could sum up in, he's a terrible person. Right? Yeah. So think about it. Think, think about how compelling it is, this, the, the drama of the moment. Right? You would have to be out of your mind not to notice, not to be moved by the fact that you, your life was in somebody else's hands who you consider to be your enemy and they didn't spare you. Like, also, he's a good actor. He's got all of his men behind him, yeah. and they're seeing how gracious the king is. Right. Yeah. I think that it's fair to be. What if you're going to look at? So, if you, so you, Donna, you mentioned something about him continuing to pursue David. Even in this text, what's the evidence that this is disingenuous? Is there? Is there any? Can you see it in the text? I mean, his words. If you just took his words at face value, you'd be like, "Wow, this—that's repentance." Okay. He still wants to be king. He's okay. Still wants to be king. Right. So he says. He says to David, "I know that you shall surely be king." Right. So he knows that that's true. But what? Not right now. <laughs> I'm king right now. <laughs> yeah. And what's how do you, how do you how does that play out in the in this text? Well, how does it end? How does the end of this, how does this confession end? Yeah. They just like they're not restored. He goes back to. Uh, he goes back to his home, Saul goes to his home, and David goes to the stronghold. Why to the stronghold? Because <laughs> he needs to be dependent against Saul, right? It's not real reconciliation. Um, so now what's going on then? Um, what's the net result of that? It's just, it's just, I mean, it's manipulative, it's a lie, it's hypocritical. Um, does, it, does it mean anything? Is there any reason why this should happen, why this does happen, why God allows this to happen? What do you think? Just God still knocking and saying, Come on, maybe. Okay. Unpardon your heart, Saul. Okay. Yeah. God continuing to be gracious towards Saul, right? 
which he's done all along, but Saul has failed to recognize. I mean, if he saw, if he was able, if he had eyes to see that in David he has a messenger of God's mercy, um, then all would be all would be well. But he doesn't have eyes to see it. Okay, good. Um, what else? Any other any other reasons why this would carry on? Why this would continue like this? And or maybe also today they're looking at. It certainly is a trial for David, right? It's putting him to the test. Yeah. Even if it doesn't work, just continue to be merciful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jan. David's going to find himself in the same place years later when he's got his own sons trying to take the kingdom away. Yeah. You know, I did. God teaches us lessons along the way. That's right. Yeah, yeah. This is not this is not uh, trivial. This is going to be weighty in his life. Remembering this, remembering, and what the question will be whether or not he does, in fact, remember what's happened to him. Uh, Beth, just going to go back to your original question that you said at the beginning about how sometimes we want to take things into our own hands. Yeah, he could have taken things into his own hands, but he was led to hold back period of time, like as a long suffering instead of jumping ahead. Yeah, yeah, and so think, that's right, think, think about the effect of that in David's life. It's not just that this is, the, this is a trial, a test where he passes the test, but what is the, what's the benefit of being put to the test and passing the test? What's the benefit of that? You, you demonstrate your faithfulness, but what about for the future? I'm sorry, you, you all said something at once. <laughs> well, one, you can read from them. You can remember, okay. You can, uh, yeah, you can draw on it and, and be seeing. And yeah. I'm asking it, I'm asking. You're also, you're free. That's right. It's not your responsibility to do anything. I mean, you know, not that you sit back and do nothing, but... So that's a great um, observation about freedom. Hang on to that thought for just one second. Holly. Yeah. So God uh, God attaches promises to faithfulness, right? So I've said to you, I'm going to give you the kingdom. I'm asking you not to take it right now. Succeeding in doing that, right? Trusting in God's promises means a blessing. Among the blessings are some really practical things. Like David is habituating himself. He's, he's becoming, he's, so when you practice uh, doing faithful things, um, trusting in God's promises, when you practice it, you get better at it, right? It's a habit. It's a forming a habit. Um, it's kind of like the, the opposite. I was talking uh, with Teddy just the other day about this, um, about how lying is problematic for its own sake. Like, and this is a lesson, you know, kids, kids come out of the womb ready to lie, uh, and, um, yeah, uh, <laughs> who put that there? I didn't put that there. Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, they come out of the womb ready to lie. And what happens when you, when you lie is you, you're, you're practicing lying. You're getting better and better at it. And all of a sudden, it's very easy for you, right? You're forming a skill. You're uh, honing it. And so that it's like it's second nature all of a sudden. The reverse is true. I mean, I mean, and that's like an easy skill to hone. That comes naturally to us, right? That's like um, learning how to walk. It's not a big deal. But learning how to be faithful, how to trust in God's promises, how not to reach out and grasp what's not yet yours, 
that's sanctification. That's going against your flesh, right? That's, count, that's learning a habit that requires you to be put to death, basically. You're crucifying your flesh. And one of the reasons why God puts us to the test and does this for us and does this to us in our lives is so that we become better and better at it. We encounter temptation at various points in our life and we think to ourselves, this is horrible. This is horribly difficult, okay? This is horribly difficult. And you think, if I could just get through this, I will have succeeded, right? But think about the, the benefit because you don't know what temptations are coming down the road, right? What, what scandal, what suffering, what trouble is down the road? And the things that burden you right now that you wish you could just be through with, they're preparing you, right? Uh, I, I had a friend who put it this way. He said, it's burning off the dross, right? So that when you come to more difficult trials, more difficult temptations, you've been rarefied. You're, you're, re- you're ready to go. You're putting on the armor of God. Um, it's is exercise in faith. And as you said, Carol, there is um, a freedom that's so essential. And this, it's a freedom that comes with having a good conscience. Having a good conscience sets you at peace because you know that the only thing that matters is how God looks at you, right? It doesn't matter whether you feel good about um, being the king or not being the king or whether it's fun for you to be pursued by Saul or whether you rather, would rather just you know, capitulate and have this all be over, just go away, right? It doesn't matter. What matters is that David does what's in front of him and trusts in God and is faithful, and so he's, he's free. He doesn't have to worry about whether or not this or that is the right thing to do because he's doing what God has given him to do. He's not scheming. He's not manipulating. He's not trying to seize this thing, and so he's free. Um, and that, I mean, that's everything. That, so, if, you know, peace of conscience. There are, lo- there are afflictions in life that really cut us to the core because they, you know, are troubles in our bodies, um, the troubles of the flesh. They're trouble with people. There are trouble with situations. But there's a worse trouble, which is an afflicted conscience. And a, a conscience that, you know, that burdens. Uh, David puts it this, in this way in, in Psalm 32. He says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me, right? My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Um, because he hadn't confessed his sins, okay? Um, but having a free conscience, having a good conscience means that weight is gone and you are free. This is, this is the, the great freedom that we have in Christ, that um, it's God who judges you and he judges you righteous and he gives you his will and he asks you to trust in him. And um, you don't have to worry about seizing things or grasping things or scheming or trying to accomplish what God has promised you because he's going to do it. Right? I think about the example of Abraham and Hagar, which is another great illustration um, where God had given them the promise, right? You're going to have a son, even in your old age. Sarah laughed. Abraham found it hard to believe. They said to themselves, well, if God's going to come through on this promise, we, we're going to have to help him, right? We're going to have to find a way. And it's, I mean, you can hear the echoes of it. It's like, well, God said, I'm going to give you a child, and he must have meant do whatever it takes to have a child, Right? No. <laughs> God said, I'm going to give you a child. S- stay in your lane, right? Just do what's given to you, and God's going to come through on his promises. And it's when you deviate, when you do what's not given to you to do, um, you cause all kinds of trouble, right? And you practice unfaithfulness. Um, there's a really important lesson there, too, though, which is that being in your lane means doing things that God has given you to do, right? So it isn't not doing anything but it's doing whatever God has given you to do. So in the case of Abraham, it means loving his wife, right? 
trusting that it's through his wife that God is going to give him a child, right? It's not that he should just sit back and wait for, you know, uh, a virgin conception, right? No, he's supposed to love his wife. That's how the child is going to come. The same thing is true of David. What has David got in front of him? Well, he's got all these men who have sworn allegiance to him. He's responsible for them, right? He's been put in authority over them. They've given him this authority. He has responsibility to his family. Remember what he does with his family? He sends them to, what is it, Maon to, and asks, and asks, is it Maon or Moab? I don't, it's an M, it's an M place, and asks them to be cared for there because he knows they're in danger, right? He's doing what's been given to him, um, and then he's free. He's free to trust in God's promises. That's a beautiful thing. Um, And this is why David is exemplary. This is why David is a type of Christ, because this is exactly what Jesus does, right? This is how Jesus saves us, by trusting in God's promises and doing what's given to him to do, um, even though it appears like it's going to be a complete failure. Aaron. It it just reminds me so much of, I think for most of us, the thing that we have to do, it's not really a temptation to grasp after, like, becoming a king, but but it is. Maybe not for you. I mean, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it, it's not the temptation to grasp after that. I think it's the temptation to be in in our lane, but not in a good way. So it's like to be discontent all the time. To look at the things that we have to do and be like, oh, I don't see any meaning in this. Why am I doing this? This is so frustrating. Nobody gives me any credit. Nobody's very. But it's like we're supposed to do the things that we're, we're supposed to do and trust that like, it's for a reason, it's for good. But I find myself just like whining. Like, I, maybe I'm not trying to become the king, but I am like really whining about what I have to do. Yeah, you want your duties to be kingly duties. Yeah, right. And, and I, think that, I think that there's something really helpful there. So part of, part of freedom, freedom is not freedom from responsibility, but it is freedom to, to, to see that your responsibilities are, they have a meaning uh, um, attributed to them by God, right? So you know the, the Luther's famous words about how, you know, the, the, all the monks created um, extra duties for themselves in order to be more godly, to elevate themselves, to make themselves more sanctified. And he says, no, 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 it's not those things that, they, that make them holy. Those, it's not those duties that are holy. It's the duty of, you know, changing a diaper, of doing whatever's in front of you whatever's been given to you in your station and vocation in life. This is why the table of duties that comes at the end of the small catechism is so important because um, there's enough for us to do in just the, like, the small sphere that we have in our immediate relationships. There's enough to do there to keep you busy forever, right? This is why Paul is all the time talking, and Peter um, is talking all the time in the epistles about what are your responsibilities, if you're a husband, do this. If you're a wife, do this. If you're a child, do this. If you're a worker, if you're a bond servant, do this. If you're a pastor, do this. Because um, it's, it's uh, discontent, it's being discontent with our duties and looking for other things that seem to pay off better, um, that takes us out of our lane, right? Um, the, the only way you can get through that, the only way that you can trust in God's promises is by seeing that he has fulfilled his promises, that he is a God who keeps his promises. He hasn't left you, like he hasn't, he's not just like a God at a distance who um, dropped a promise out of thin air and said, you don't know me, but I want you to believe this, okay? You don't know me, but trust that I'm going to come through. Like, I've got a great investment idea. Just give me all your money and it'll be okay. No, he's established a relationship from the beginning 
which was, I said I'm going to rescue you from Egypt. I pulled you out of Egypt. I said I would save you from Pharaoh's army, and I destroyed them all in the Red Sea. I said I would take you to the promised land. You didn't want to go to the promised land, so I disciplined you, and I took you to the promised land, right? I said I would give you a king who would rule in righteousness. I gave you David, right? I said I would build a house for myself, and I had Solomon do it. And I said I would put my name there, and I would be there for you. I did it, okay? I said I would send a Messiah who would rule in righteousness and peace and who would save God's people, and I did it. He died, and he rose on the third day. I mean, that is, if you think, if you, I get questions from the high schoolers about the reliability of the Bible. The most important thing, the, the, basis, is, the basis for all of this is that Christ died and rose again, right? It's like Paul says, if that didn't happen, we of all people are most to be pitied. But it happened, and there are witnesses, and we believe it. And that's how the ordinary things of life can take on this grand significance. Because if God was able to raise Jesus from the dead then he can take these mundane, ordinary things that seem like they have no reward and which we would rather not do over and over and over again, and he can turn them into bright, shining pearls. And um, it's, it's like, I mean, it's like he says to the people of Israel, it's like Moses says to the people of Israel, all you have to do is keep silent and watch. I'm going to do it, okay? Just stop, just, just stop grumbling about it, and I'm going to do it, you know? That's hard. Um, and, And there you see the temptation, um, you see it in real time. And remember, remember that you're habituating yourself. You're practicing. When you practice contentment, when you practice doing what's given to you, you get better at it. And the Holy Spirit strengthens you for it. And you repent of your failure and you carry on knowing that this is exactly, confident that this is exactly what God has given to you to do. And you are free. You don't have to invent. I think that so much of the trouble we run into in the world is because people invent new responsibilities for themselves. They think that they have to invent things that God has given to them as a gift. This is true in marriage all the time. I mean, in premarital counseling and in, and in the struggles that folks have often in marriage, it's because we've tried to get out of our lane. We haven't followed the, the path that God has given to us. Children and their parents, relationship between children and parents, it's often the case that we're trying to do things on our own. We're trying to invent a way to be a parent or a way to be a child when God has said, here, this is, these are the most important things. Here are the priorities. Do these things, okay? And I will bless you. Um, but David himself was not, you know, didn't, wasn't without doubts. There's a great psalm. Um, let me see if I can find it here. Psalm 89, I think, is the one I'm thinking of. This is not the one. Hang on. Psalm 69? I'll just tell you what it says if I can't find it. No, I can't find it. Um, He says, God established the covenant with David. So he's speaking in the third person. God established the covenant with David. He promised him faithfulness forever. He said he was going to put him on his throne. He said he was going to raise up offspring for him forever in perpetuity. He said he would make him prosper. all, All those are wonderful things. God promised all of those things to David. And then in the next stanza, he says, you are awful at this, God. I am being pursued by my enemies all the time. Your covenant seems to be worthless. Uh, People hold me in derision. uh, I am a reproach among the people. They they despise your name because I am so low and despised. What gives, right? David feels that way about God's promises. And this is why the Psalms are so valuable to us because um, he gives voice to this lament, but then he turns and at the end he says, as he always does, I will praise the Lord. I will trust in your faithfulness. Um, 
and he insists that God let him not be put to shame. This is the exercise of faith. Um, and whether it's, you know, like your day-to-day responsibilities or whether it's something big that you encounter, you know, a crisis like finding yourself in the cave with Saul um, or in the next chapter being tempted to wipe out an entire family, right? Um, doesn't matter. It's the, same, it's the same exercise of faith. And um, God, gives, God promises to give you strength and encourages you to trust in him. And this is why studying these stories is so valuable because you see that it's, this, is not, this has been done before, right? You're not alone. And uh, God is good and he keeps his word. That was, that was a long sermon on all of this. Good question. Aaron. I think I think that's that's absolutely right, um, and this here's the value here's the value of the psalm is that it puts those words into your mouth even when you can't see it right even when it's not by all you know appearances it's not true, yet the, it puts the words in your mouth and the words are God's words that carry His Spirit, and that's that's what you know that's what faith clings to is what God's word says, um, but you're right um, this Peter Peter talks about this in in his epistles, in his first epistle, about how a day is as a thousand years for the Lord and a thousand years is a day. To, you know, to point out, of course, that what for us seems like an interminable amount of suffering is for God, you know, momentary, a momentary affliction. Um, and it's to put in perspective the fact that we cannot see our lives in real time, right? We cannot, we can't, we can't step back. We can't, we can't like look at the whole scope of the thing, and that's part of the exercise of faith. Um, and the, the way Peter deals with that, he says, okay, so your timing is all wrong. You, can't, you don't understand how time works, and you, don't, you can't see the beginning or end of things that God can see. But here's what you can see, the beginning and end of Christ's faithfulness. You can see that he laid in the tomb for what seemed like an endless amount of time to his people. I mean, three days, having lost this fellow who was your entire hope, is interminable right? Seems like it's never going to end. And yet, you see the end of that. You can see through uh, death and the grave, which by all accounts are final. You can see it because you see the resurrected Christ. Um, there's, no other, there's no other way to deal with it, right? Because, I, I mean, honestly, otherwise, suffering that seems to have no end is, um, can only lead to despair. That's the only other possible outcome of suffering that seems to have no end. Um, is despair. It's, it's only by the grace of God that we have this picture of Christ um, who brings an end to suffering and promises that for you. Uh, yeah, there you go. Any other questions? Well, Pastor, I, I was just thinking that 
You know, our lives touch a lot of others' lives. Yeah. And, and sometimes I think the suffering and the trials um, are for the benefit of other people. Sure. Just, just because it's an example. God uses us in those situations. Yeah. Because everybody faces different difficulties. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way they can learn yeah right right um that's absolutely true so you um god uses us in all kinds of masterful ways in all kinds of wonderful ways that we we can't see and i find myself um marveling um when i see examples of faithfulness i think i mean really we should thank god for it and you should cling to it so here's an here's another important thing to think about um you know david got these this consort of fellows who are telling him that now he should seize what God has given to him, what has promised to give to him. He should do it now. It's, you know, God has put, this in, has put Saul into your hand. And they are not helpful, right? They are not helpful. They are enemies of God's word at that moment. Um, in the next chapter, which we'll do some other time, um, <laughs> David has Abigail show up in his life. Abigail, who speaks to him God's word, restrains him, restrains his violence, tells him the truth and gives him this example of humility and vulnerability and faithfulness. And he, although he shouldn't marry her, he should keep her close, right? You should, you should take very seriously that the kinds of people that you, you need to have close in your life are those kinds of people. Those kinds of people who will um, not whisper, you know, this kind of deceitful serpentine language in your ears, but the people who will tell you what God's word is, and who will strengthen you and encourage you to trust in God's promises and not in your own strength. Um, those, those people are so important because God has given us people to strengthen and encourage our faith, and you cannot do it on your own. You cannot. This is why God has given us the church. This is why God has given you faithful people around you. Don't take them for granted, right? It's, it's for the sake of your faith that he's done that. Holly, did you have a question? Uh, this is a comment about... David almost believing. Like, I wonder if why he cut off the curse. So, like, in that moment, was he thinking, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe this is the time that God's delivered us all to me. But as soon as he cut that off, it was like, yeah. God spoke something different, clearly, to his heart. Right. But how often we think that, you know, this is what God wants for us. It's a mess right there. It's right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's hard to, to decipher uh, even those who are faithful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that the, one of the lessons to learn there is how important it is to heed the voice of your conscience, right? So um, his friends have done him no service by silencing his conscience, right? And, and your conscience is a, is, a, is a delicate thing. They come in and they, they kind of put the, put the mufflers on it and say, just, you know, that's, listen to us. We have, we have the truth here. Um, and when his heart strikes him, he has two options, of course. To th- Think about, I mean, if you, if you sort of like explore your inner life, you can f- discover all of the ways that we silence or set aside or argue with or re- just reject outright your conscience. And it's the same sort of thing. Um, in terms of like practicing 
habituating yourself. So the, the more you practice silencing your conscience, the better you get at it. The more you surround yourself with people who encourage you and help you to silence your conscience, the easier it is, right? This is why being with Christians um, is not always a pleasant, cheerful life because they um, agree with your conscience, <laughs> right? <laughs> they agree with your conscience. They tell you, yeah, you're, yeah, you should feel bad about that. That was terrible, right? You know, and that's, I mean, Christians do that for each other. Jan. Well, and if you think about these guys and David, and you think about Job and his three friends who tell his first God and die, you really have the same kind of people in both situations. Yeah, and what's so interesting about the relationship between, so, so Job's friends are trying to tell David that, or to tell Job, Job's friends are trying to tell Job that um, God is, well, yeah, that's right, that, that, that this is, there's some retribution going on here, so that his suffering is on account of God's just judgment. And it's because they have a picture of the world in which you can understand how justice works. You can see cause and effect, and so you, you're suffering this, so you must have done this, Okay. And what they're doing when they do that is they're subjecting God to their own notions of judgment, of justice. And the end of the story for Job is that God is just whether or not you can figure out how his justice plays out. And that the only way we can align ourselves with God and be consonant with his justice is, to, is by letting him be justified in his words. Right? So letting his words be true and every man a liar. Right? Listen to what God says. Um, and that's, that's the case here as well, right? You don't have to put words in God's mouth. Well, as soon as you put words in God's mouth, you make, you make him a liar, right? And it's, it's their own sense of justice. Yeah, Saul is a wicked king. He deserves to be brought to nothing, okay? Uh, let the wicked be, be brought to ruin. Um, that's what it said in the psalm. And uh, they're going to carry it out for God. But no, God, God's word is going to do its own, its own thing, um, and that's, that's, you know, so our righteousness, our justice, our justification, our freedom and our peace of conscience um, rely entirely on God's faithfulness and his, the fact that he speaks the truth and that he carries out what, he's, what he says. Um, and this is why the relationship between faith and promises is really everything. That's, that's, the, that's um, the center of our relationship with God is that he speaks, and we listen and believe. Um, there's no other way. Otherwise, you end up with a God of your own invention, and he's not just. As, as just as he may appear, he's not just. We probably should quit. Did we finish the chapter? We did. Oh, yeah. You um, did a good job answering my questions. Thanks for doing that. Oh, and let me just read you this quotation. Uh, yeah, this, this quotation um, from Peter Lightheart, who's a commentator on um, Samuel, and he says this, he sums it up really well. He says, David could return good for evil in the confidence that Yahweh would vindicate him in the end. So, and that's the only way. That's the only way you can return good for evil. That's the only way you can stay in your lane. That's the only way you can do what's given to you is the confidence that God is going to vindicate and glorify in the end. Um, so we should pray for faith like David's. That's really 
spectacular. A great example to us. Krista. Uh, the picture. That's Abigail. Yeah. That's a great picture. It's a fantastic painting. Um, well, maybe we'll leave it around and you can do it with next week's Pastor Nelson, although he's expecting to do chapter 26 next week, so <laughs> we'll see what happens. Okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.